those of you who were visiting with us a, a couple of weeks ago, we began uh, looking together uh, at the subject of Christian ethics, uh, and we are using as our primary uh, text uh, an older book written by a Professor John Murray called Principles of Conduct, and uh, we looked last time, as we will be reminded of in a moment, uh, began to look at the creation ordinances and the creation itself, and we'll continue uh, with that theme this morning. One of the most important truths that we as Christians need to ground ourselves in is a perspective that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. And that's a text where he asks the question, who makes you to differ? Who makes you differ? If you hold to what you hold to, if you believe it is right and believe it is true, why do you hold to it? Why do you hold to it and your neighbor doesn't? Why do you hold to it and your father or mother doesn't? Why do you hold to it and your brother or sister doesn't? Why are you the way that you are? Why do you think or act the way that you do in distinction from the world or even from your own past? How many of you have convictions now that you didn't have when you were 16? How many of you think differently now than you did when you were 20? Why? What's the reason for it? Is it because you are smarter than your parents or smarter than your brother or smarter than your sister? Is it because you are fundamentally a better person than they are? Is that why you have the convictions that you have? Is that why you act the way that you do? Is that the, is that the answer to the question? You're smarter, you're better. I mean, that's generally the answer, right? If, if, if I have a position you don't have and it's a superior position, I have it because I'm smarter or I am better than you are. That's how the world thinks. And sadly, sometimes it can be the way that we think. The answer to the question in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, who makes you to differ, is, is what? What's the answer to the question? God, God makes you to differ. Grace makes you to differ. The gospel makes you to differ. Regeneration makes you to differ. Being given by God a new heart and a new mind in which the law of God is written is the answer to the question, who makes you to differ? So I want to remind us here uh, again, and perhaps we'll, we'll need to say this several times or even many times in the weeks ahead and things that we study. Some of what we study will make us angry. Some of what we study will make us sad as we consider the state of the world around us. I would imagine for all of us there are things that we witness and things that we see that provoke in us and a degree of anger, and let me ask, is, it, is that ever a righteous response? Yes, it is. Is God angry at those things? Yes, and so it's righteous for us to be angry at them. Uh, not to pick on any one group in particular, but at one of the recent uh, so-called gay pride parades in New York City, a group of naked men walking through New York City said, and I quote, we're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children. Now, when they chant that, as compassionate as you want to be and loving as you want to be to your neighbor, that should arouse in you a degree of righteous anger. 
and a desire for the judgment of God. At other times, it's going to make us sad. It's going to make us despair. We look at the world around us. We sang about that. And it's one of the joys of singing some old songs. We're not the first generation to say that though uh, the wrong seems off so strong. And to remind yourself God is the ruler yet. And that God's not done. And that Jesus isn't done doing all that he's going to do. But do you look at the future right now with hope and optimism? Maybe if you're a post-millennialist you say, well, I, I do. Uh, but if you're not, do you think to yourself, do you look at the, the, the as you project what's, what is to come in society? Are you encouraged, discouraged, happy, or sad? See, we, we can feel these ways. What I want to say about that, that all this is this. Because it is grace that makes us to, give her, to differ, we have no ground for pride. And because it is grace that makes you to differ, we can live with hope. Because the grace that changed us is the grace that can change others. Uh, If you uh, could encounter, as it were, your unconverted self and and somehow distance yourself, dissociate yourself, and know that you're talking to your younger self and had a conversation about ethics or about other things, would, would you have given up on yourself? Would you think, no hope for that one? And yet, a few weeks or a few months or a few years later, the grace of God would come and change. Because, again, it is grace that changes us. We may have ground for righteous anger. We may have cause for just lamentation. But we have no ground for pride. And the last thing I would want to do in this class is to deal with this subject in such a way as to make all of us feel just morally superior And forget that we are what we are and we think what we think and we do what we do because God's grace in Christ found us. It's not simply because we embrace natural revelation and understood the way that the world works. If that's the case, yes, pride. If it's grace that makes you to differ, then it's humility and hope, hope for others. Again, while natural revelation can make people accountable... It, generally speaking, does not change them. It's special revelation that does that. And if you want a a text that works through that, what text would you point to? What text shows us the the glory of of special, of of natural revelation, but the superiority of natural revelation? Psalm Psalm 19, right? So natural revelation can show us the glory of God, but it is the law of God that converts the soul. It's the law of God that gives life. It's the law of God that enlightens the soul and is to be more desired than gold. So in light of this, our class on distinctly Christian ethics is rooted in biblical truth. And even we need to incorporate into this the great overarching truths of the great story of the Bible which generally has been divided into four parts. Creation, fall, redemption, and glory. And as we consider these matters of ethics, we need to remember the fallenness of man. <clears throat> we, need to remember, or we need to remember the creation of man, <clears throat> which is what we're dealing with last week and again today. We need to remember the creation and what that compels us to do and to think and to act. We also need to remember the fall 
Uh, we cannot study ethics without an understanding of the fall, and we cannot have distinct Christian ethics without the reality of redemption and without the hope, as we will see in the morning worship, of the world to come. All right. <clears throat> And we cannot, as we come to this, uh, this the matter this morning, we cannot understand our lives and our labors apart from these essential fourfold truths. Now, we began our study on ethics. Our Pastor Derek gave a, a, an overview, and then last week we began to look at uh, the matter of creation, and we referenced at that time the creation ordinances. So what do we mean by an ordinance? What is an ordinance? Derek? Was something God has ordained. Okay. Yeah, ordinance is, it's a matter of decree. It's a matter of revelation. It's a matter of command. Uh, it's a matter of God showing and demonstrating that this is something that he himself has established. So, uh, creation ordinances. So what was ordained or what was laid forth preeminently in the matters of creation in the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2? Marriage. All right, so marriage is one of them. So when we do a wedding, we usually begin by saying marriage is an ordinance of God. In the beginning, we, we will say. And so we will draw back our teaching about marriage to what happened uh, in the garden. Paul does that. Jesus does that. Jesus is going to teach on marriage. Jesus goes to the creation. And Paul's going to teach on marriage. He's, going to, he's, he's not just going to talk about Christ and the church. He's going to go back to creation and show that this is relevant for our understanding of the institution of marriage. What else is a creation ordinance? The seventh day, also known as? The Sabbath. All right, so the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor. So we can go ahead and mention this one. So labor is also regarded as a creation ordinance, and both of them are found in this matter of the, of the creation as it is then later uh, referenced when Moses is, or when God gives the Ten Commandments, he roots it in creation. When Jesus talks about the Sabbath, he roots it in creation, right? Not, not in Israel's distinct national history, not in the particular economy of the civil law, not in the ceremonial law. He roots the Sabbath in creation. And that's one of the reasons why we hold to what we would call the perpetuity of the fourth commandment, why the fourth commandment's not irrelevant, because it is a creation ordinance as well as a matter of moral law. Uh, all right, so those are the three main ones. Uh, there are others that some uh, reference. Can you think of some others uh, that Murray, if you've read the chapter, uh, Principles of Conduct, Murray references some other things that are associated with, in some cases, tangential to these three main creation ordinances. Procreation. All right, procreation, which is rooted in? In marriage, all right, and we're going to look at that in just a moment, and, and how and why, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so procreation, what else? Sanctity of life. Sanctity of life, we could, we could say, all right, we talked a little bit about that last week, 
and we'll, we'll rehearse that in a moment. What yeah. else? Yeah. Who I am. Right, Science right, right. Is a creation work. All right, so uh, a, 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 a mandate of, in some cases we could say stewardship, or, uh, dominion or stewardship over the earth and our use of the earth is rooted in creation. Okay, so let's, let's begin to look at, uh, that's what we want to be uh, turned to. Uh, this morning. Now, by way of reminder, we saw that virtually every ethical issue that we face today, for us as believers, is dependent upon the matter of special creation. If God did not make us, if we are not image bearers of God, then all bets are off. And ethics becomes simply a matter of uh, cultural consensus or of individual philosophical autonomy. Because we have no moral bite on, a con- on the conscience, on our conscience and on others. If we do not have a divine, thus says the Lord, if the people we are talking to are not creatures of the living God, if they are not his creation and therefore an obligation of obedience as their creator and king, as well as their lawgiver, their judge, and their potential savior, then really what we are trying to argue is simply superiority. And we're having uh, arguments that are saying, well, well, I believe or I assert this. And the modern self, which strives to live in autonomy uh, from any kind of divine mandate, which tries to untether itself from the reality of creation, creates its own reality and its own moral firmness even, uh, as far as saying, I, I, I am right and, and not just I'm right and you are wrong, I'm virtuous in my self-assertions and you are wicked to not embrace what I have. That, that's where we are and even some of that has changed, at least in our own country, uh, in most of our lifetimes. And so if, if we are not image bearers, then Jim's assertion of the sanctity of life, how do you, how, if we are nothing more than animals... On what basis do we assert the sanctity of life? It's a preference, right? And in some cases, and and this is such a striking thing, and we've seen this, some of our families who are going through uh, situations, medical situations with the unborn child. You have a child with a heart defect, what what are most doctors going to say to you? Take it out, abort it, kill it. But when a mother says, I don't want to do that, then suddenly we will now marshal every power that we have to save that child. What made the difference between the two scenarios? Because we have come to believe that, this is, that, that a mother gives their child worth. And she can either view it as her baby or as a clump of cells or, or, or as this invasive species inside of her body. 
But when she says, it's my baby and I want to keep it, well then, even in the world right now, we say, well, now it has, it's now been assigned a value. And we will now spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to save it. So it's a striking thing. All right. So we need to, again, remind ourselves that these things are in creation. Uh, some of the great matters of, of debate, and I thought about getting into this more. I think I'm going I'm to hold this off, but I'm simply going to mention it. Uh, that he made them male and female. Jesus asserts this as well, and when Jesus gives the account of the creation and its impact on marriage, he does remind us that he created them male and female. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something like, the problem when people stop believing in God is not that they'll believe nothing, but that they'll believe anything. And when you unmoor yourself from the creation we now are in a situation where there's a hundred genders and they're all fluid and and you can be one thing in the morning and another thing in the afternoon another thing in the evening and that can be held to with a with a with a moral certitude from the white house down that this is reality and the only again the only way to do that is to disassociate yourself from the opening chapters of genesis Again, you think, you know, how many of you, let's go back in our time machine to 1990 or so and say, how many of you would have believed that we would be in, in this kind of, of moral and intellectual madness where to not use a, 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 somebody's preferred pronoun is viewed as an act of violence? How, how did we get there? Well, again, it's, it is this moving away or this rejection of these opening words in Genesis. So why do we stand apart? Again, what makes our argument different from some conservative YouTuber, uh, some libertarian or, or conservative YouTuber? Well, it's revelation rooted in our submission to God's word, rooted in God's work of grace uh, in our hearts. And so we have argued that it is not without reason that the opening chapters of Genesis have been attacked more than any other. Uh, you cannot foster an agenda, a moral agenda, which would lead to the crippling and the breaking down of society. And again, remember, Satan is a liar and a murderer. He, he is a thief and a destroyer. And you cannot rob and destroy. You cannot lie, deceive, and manipulate when there is a bastion of truth. You have to assault the bastion of truth. You need to make what is true uh, seem specious or implausible, and then once that is the case, then anything goes. And that's part of the reason why we are where we are. All right, so let's now begin looking at the creation ordinances. And the first of them is marriage. Now, Pastor Charlie's looking at me, and he's saying, Jim, you know I'm going to deal with this in a couple of weeks. There's plenty to talk about. Well, I magically know everything you wanted to say. and I'm not. So Pastor Charlie is going to open this up in a couple of weeks. And so I'm just going to touch on a few uh, things here briefly. But, but one of the things that we learn uh, from the creation account and, and, the, and the account of man's creation is that Adam is alone. And as he sees the animals, as he names the animals, and as he watches them with each other and, and recognizes they have a 
a counterpart, and he recognizes that he has, there's nobody like him. Um, I like my dog. I talk to my dog. And yes, I sometimes have my dog talk back to me. That's only a form of mild insanity on my part. I know a lot of you do the same thing. Uh, you imagine your dog talking to you. Some people, that's, that's almost all their communion is with a cat or a dog or a, a ferret or something like that. But I think one of the things that we need to look at in the creation, in the creation account, it is not good for a man to be alone. Is the reality that God created man to be communal. And, and not just to have wives and not just to have children but to live in community, to have friends, companions, associates. Man is not meant to dwell alone. And when we live alone and dwell alone and think alone, uh, we are susceptible to uh, numerous troubles and problems. He who isolates himself rages against all sound counsel. And so whether or not we marry, and the creation account does not mean that everyone should marry. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong or wicked to, to not be married. Now, in some cases, you, you might say, well, maybe for some, the reason they don't marry is selfishness, and that's rooted in sin. But there are, there are those who are born eunuchs. There are those who, as it were, make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And, and the idea is that there are some who deny themselves or some who, in God's providence, simply are not meant to be married, but whether or not we are meant to be married, we are meant to be communal. We are meant to be among the people of God. Uh, heaven is not, you know, one of the, like this, well, I don't, I, I, if you love the whole, like, uh, footprints on the sand motif, uh, the problem with that is that there are at most two sets of footprints uh, when really the reality is there are millions of sets of footprints, you know, that, 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 and, and when we are, when the Lord carries us, as it were, He often carries us through the family of God. Uh, so we are meant to be uh, communal. We're meant to have a family. There's, when God creates societies and nations, and He created the church uh, to aid us and support us and, and, and cheer us. Now, marriage, as you look at the Genesis account, you have one of two options to look at it. One is that it is mythology created to uh, give understanding to primitive man as to why there's marriage. Like, you know, somehow there's marriage, and so some ancient people, too stupid to figure it out, and so somebody creates a myth about how all of this came about. That's how some people view Genesis. Is that how Jesus viewed Genesis and, and the marriage of Adam and Eve? Now, he viewed it as history. And again, for those who say Jesus never addressed gender, he most certainly did. Not only by affirming the historicity of the Genesis account, by explicitly reminding us that in the beginning, he created them male and female. And part of the reason of gender differences is so that we can be married, and it's so that we can be joined to one another in sexual union, and from that union produce children. And, and, and this is, again, so fundamental to the laying out of, of all that God is laying out in the creation ordinances. Now, again, 
Not every marriage produces children. But it is meant to be only in marriage that children are produced. Now again, I know that doesn't happen. And that's not the fault of the children. And sadly, they've all, children have often been stigmatized because of it. But this ties into, in so many ways, the issue of the subduing of the earth. Adam and Eve were two people. And the world then, and the world now, from this perspective, is a pretty big place. There is no way for Adam and Eve to subdue or have dominion or stewardship over the earth. In order for that to happen, you need to have lots of people. And so again, you see these things are are working uh, in association uh, together. Um, John Murray says this, we, we have to envisage also the far-reaching implications for the structure of society. When we continue the mandate of the replenishing of the earth, we must appreciate that the geographical expansion involved was not merely for the purpose of filling the earth with people, but also for the purpose of subduing the earth and its resources and of exercising dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and everything that moves upon the face of of the earth. So in regard to modern ethics, I just want to make a few comments here and then maybe have some discussion about this. When asking the question, how did we get where we did, where we are, in regard to some of these matters, the world of 1950 was very different than the world of 2023. And certain things happened or were introduced that helped bring us to where we are. And to understand some of the modern mythical issues that that we are facing, you need to understand what happened with the effects of things like birth control and abortion. What did birth control do? And what did abortion, well, let me start with birth control. And again, I'm not saying that all birth control is necessarily wrong. I'm not, I'm not making any comment about that. But what did birth control do? It enabled the sexual revolution. Well, how so? It separated sex from marriage. Right? It, 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 so why did some people get, used to get married? Because they, they got pregnant. The woman got pregnant. And so they had to do the right thing. Some men, in order to have sex with a woman because she was concerned about pregnancy, uh, would marry her. In some cases, people got married so that they could have sex and, and then, in marriage, not be afraid of the offspring that will come through sexual union. That's how children are made. Anybody young enough here? Okay, uh, a little. Uh, moms and dads, your, your kids should know that. Uh, this ought not to be shocking news. Um, I can't believe the preacher said that. Um, somebody's going to tell them that. And, and far better to hear it from God's word and hear it from you than find it on YouTube or, or just through friends. And so one of the things that, that birth control did is it separated sex from marriage. Now, again, I'm saying that in a large-scale way. Obviously, the history of the world is replete with fornication and adultery and, and, and all of the rest. Okay, But, but in, in a large-scale way, it made it possible 
for people to say when they viewed sex and marriage and viewed sex and marriage in association with procreation, it brought a wedge there. And abortion did the same thing. Okay? So abortion and birth control allowed for a separation of sex from marriage and procreation. And now we have the technology, on the other hand, this is again part of the weirdness of our society, we not only become masters of death, but now we become engineers of life. And so that where those who were barren or those who have no partner. So today, a woman can get pregnant without a man. Well, not technically without a man. But without marriage and without a, a committed partner. You can separate the, an egg and sperm and, and put them together in a laboratory and then implant an embryo uh, into a uterus and, and bring about conception so that now you can have uh, this is what has allowed uh, gay partners to have families you know to we, we're creating we're creating a family and we no longer need the biological union of a man and a woman we have we have overthrown the creator as it were, we have become our own God. And now we will say, let there be life. Where God had said it, we will now say it. And I simply say that some of these things have a profound effect upon marriage rates and procreation rates, gender confusion, abortion, and all of the rest are rooted in this war against these opening chapters uh, of Genesis. Any additional thoughts quickly on that, Jim? So you're referring to Margaret Sangster, Planned Parenthood, uh, the idea, and some of those undesirables were uh, basically non-white, you know, uh, anybody non-white, anybody non-European, uh, as well as people of uh, sub-intellect uh, uh, and those kinds of things. It's, and, and even when we talk about, you know, we are, we are facing, it's an interesting thing, we are facing in the West this negative population matter. And again, these are, all, these are all ethical things that need to be addressed. There's negative birth rates. And, and there are those who are predicting the collapse of societies like China as a result of this within 10 years, uh, and Japan, and then eventually the U.S. Now, now, we say that, and there's also parts of the world, India and other parts of the world, where population is growing, which is why, you know, in my lifetime, the population of the Earth has doubled. Now, what I was told, and some of you who are old enough, you, you all remember what we were told in the 60s and 70s 
that the earth is unsustainable for more than four or five billion people. And that even at four billion, the earth was, it was, there's no way the earth could feed four billion people. And so movies like Soylent Green and, you know, th- this kind of stuff, you don't know what that is. And I, I won't spoil it for you if you ever want to <laughs> look at it or look it up. Uh, but but that was all founded upon this this incredible overpopulation and trying to find food sources and and, and whatnot. Uh, and, and so again, some of this is that the matter of children. Children are a burden. Uh, having children is is, is in, in the minds of some people a crime against the earth. You know. So, all right. Anything else? Where we just take a quick look at labor. Oh, Monica, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we are we are, in some cases, are the, the matter of infanticide. Of course, we argue all abortion is infanticide, uh, but we are we're heading strongly to that again, where we assign value. If, if a child has a birth defect, if they have Down syndrome, if they're not perfect, uh, if they're the wrong gender, which of course. Well, see, today now you can't know, you know, so there's no reason to have abortion because of that anymore. Cause... Alfredo? I would, I would say that there's nothing happening about here, and we're getting even confusion on the language, too. Because you can't, you know, look even Wikipedia and whoever people decide to change the pronoun. Right. Make it impossible to read. Yeah, re- read Wikipedia's article on Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, as Bruce Jenner, uh, Caitlyn Jenner won the men's national. Uh, you know, so you know, we, we, we have reached. Yeah, really, it's a, it's a level of madness uh, and insanity. All right, let me t- let's take a quick look at uh, this matter of labor. And again, th- uh, we're doing an overview right now. Some of these things will probably we will come back to to some degree. A quick look at labor. Um, we're going to look at. Later on, things like retire. I want to touch on retirement and voluntary unemployment and, and some of that. What does the Bible have to say about this? But what is the matter of six days you shall labor? This is a matter of creation. So what does this say to our humanity? What are we meant to do? Work. We are meant to work. And, 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 if, and if, if you're retired, you're still meant to work. It, it, retirement is not meant, I'm going to say this, I don't believe it is designed by God, certainly for believers, to be unending idleness. There are other things to employ your time and your talents and resources for. Um, you know, the matter of voluntary unemployment, which many people, is a, a part of uh, what we're facing as a society right now. This labor is tied to some degree to what we often refer to as the dominion mandate. And we're reminded in that that man is not a passive image bearer, but an active participant in a right sense. I'm going to use this language of the subduing of the earth, and I want to make sure that we understand what this means. I'm going to read a bit from Murray here. Uh, he, He says, we are not to suppose that the earth is represented particularly here in, in the Genesis account as offering resistance to man's dominion and that the subduing was to be that of, 
a conquering alien over recalcitrant powers. But the subduing of the earth must imply the expenditure of thought and skill and energy matters, I think we can say, are related to image bearing in bringing the earth and its resources under such control that they would be channeled to the promotion of certain ends which they were suited and designed to fulfill, but which would not be fulfilled apart from the exercise of man's design and labor. So, for instance, one of God's purposes in in sand was so that you could make glass. But the sand wouldn't become glass apart from man's ingenuity and discovery. Part of the reason there's iron in the earth is so it can be utilized and harvested. Part of the reason there's copper in the earth is so that these, that's the idea, is to understand God had purpose and design, but it was man as image bearer coming in, seeing and subduing and channeling creatively these things. In the sense in which Jesus spoke of the Sabbath as made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so we may say that the earth and its resources were made for man and not man for them. Here again, right? It turns the world's view of environmentalism on, on its head. He was to exercise dominion over them. They were not to rule over him. So that thorns are not meant to rule over us so that we see thorns and go, well, there's no way we can live there. But no, that there would be a way of subduing them, pushing them back, eliminating them, so that we would rule over it and not it over us. The earth and its resources were to be brought into the service of his well-being enjoyment and and Murray says pleasure the nature of man if you haven't read this section if, if if for no other reason I would just read this section on labor there's a real beauty in in in, in Murray's thinking I, I really love the way he goes about this the nature of man is richly diversified there is not only a diversity of basic need but there is also a profuse variety of taste and interest of aptitude and endowment of desires to be satisfied and of pleasures to be gratified. When we consider the manifold ways in which the earth is fashioned and equipped to meet and gratify the diverse nature and endowment of man, we can catch a glimpse of the vastness and variety of the task involved in subduing the earth, a task directed to the end of developing man's nature, gifts, interests, and powers in the engagement with the resources deposited by God in the earth and the sea. Let's understand, look, we can do something with this, with this salt. We can do something with these things, with, you know, so, so, so that you can enjoy some of the things that you do. I, I had a hamburger the other day at a restaurant that wasn't seasoned. I'm sorry, folks. That's not how you cook a hamburger. And it's not just up to me to know this. But, but years, there, there was a time people, whenever they had their first hamburger, they might not have thought of that. They didn't know how to, you know, I mean, but eventually learning how to season things and how to create things. And because God has created so many people with so much wisdom in so many different ways, all of us benefit. I wouldn't have a clue how to make this. 
But somebody knew, well, what, what metals needed to be harvested and then how they needed to be melted and how they needed to be shaped and, and how they need, and somebody designed it. Some engineer thought about putting it together and a craftsman assembled it and for all of our enjoyment and for our benefit. It's part of the reality of who and what we are uh, as creatures. And I want to say this real quickly here, that the use of the earth... And in, in, in really, I think I want to use the word stewardship. The, the term dominion can carry with it at times a kind of a sense of destructive conquering. Just plow it all, burn it, you know, shoot it all, you know. Like, you know, I, I, I don't believe our elimination of buffalo, for instance, and all of that. And so many just you know, just driving, you know, shoot them out the window you know, of your, of your uh, train and, and just leave it to rot. I don't believe that's what's meant by dominion. But rather what's meant by that is understanding, focusing, fashioning. We act as creatives. So a man sees cotton and realizes shirts. You see a tree and recognize a table. You see a stone and recognize that that can be cut and planed and, and moved and it can fashion a wall or a pyramid. Seeing sand and finding glass. One, one man said in a, a recent book on technology, all the components of your smartphone are rooted in the creation. Somebody saw and put together all of those things. You know, if I took this and did that to it and did this and did that to it, I can create a computer that people can carry around in their pocket. That's the dominion mandate. That's man acting as creative. It's used for mutual good, again, so that we not only cut down trees, but plant them. And again, Jim's sounding like a tree hugger. Uh, but what happens if we only cut down and don't plant, right? Right, we have to, right. We preserve parts, portions of this world simply to view and enjoy. I, I, I thank God there's not a McDonald's at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You know, the, that there are parts of the world that we can go to unspoiled that shout to us the glory of God in the same way that man's stewardship of resources show ultimately the glory of God. All right, well, there's more there that we can say when we're going to pray and uh, we can get back to this. And I even want to go over at some point uh, all the things that we're uh, hoping to uh, discuss in these classes next week is the confession of faith then charlie on the create uh, uh, on on marriage for at least two three weeks maybe two well yeah it's gonna be two three weeks but i'm gonna be, I'm gonna be yeah you're gonna miss one so all right we'll, we'll we'll we will have it all worked out all right well let's pray and ask god's blessing on these things our father we thank you that this is your world we thank you that Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth will be one. Lord, we thank you that you are a wise, a good, and gracious creator and that in obeying you, there is great reward, Father, for believer and even unbeliever that this world has prospered when people have uh, submitted uh, to the truth and to your rule. Father, we thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us even in our sin and that you have changed us by your grace. Lord, do help us now 
in the moments to come as we come to worship the, the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.